I'm Zachary Cartwright. This is Water and Food. If you have a change in solubility, then people aren't uptaking, you know, into their body what they're expecting. And that just uh, stopped the change in water activity, essentially. And so it was a beautiful experiment. And they see, does the water activity change? And when it plateaued, and that's what they found, then they could say, ah, that's that's the boundary that we're looking for. So a little bit of extra knowledge can, can help upstream. Welcome to another episode of Water in Food. In this special episode, I'm joined by three guests and colleagues from Meter Group. We have application specialist, Mary Galloway, head of instrumentation, Zach Campbell, and founder of Meter Group, Dr. Galen Campbell. Let's have each of you say hello and tell us a little bit about your work at Meter, starting with you, Mary. Hello, um, I'm Mary Galloway. I'm the application scientist at Meter. I've been here for 10 years. And I would say, in a nutshell, what I do is help people understand how moisture is going to affect their products. And I also uh, manage our R&D lab. So we work with instruments and uh, from the full development phase and also uh, other instruments and do some fun experiments. And Mary is also famous for her webinars. <laughs> uh, and I'll go to you, Zach. Tell us a little bit about your role at Meter. Yeah, happy to be here. So as uh, Zachary mentioned, uh, my role is uh, Director of Instrumentation. So what that means is I have the privilege of uh, managing our instrumentation portfolio on the food side. That includes our water activity meters, new product development, uh, and then I get to do some application support sometimes as well. Dr. Galen Campbell? I, I uh, also get to work with some of the design stuff. We do both environmental and foods. Um, instrumentation and I work in both areas um, and also some of the applications. Well thank you all for being here today. Today we will be briefly discussing two scientific papers and discussing their applications in both the food and pharma industries. This is a highly technical topic, definitely more than our usual episodes, but is really critical and we are sure that some of our listeners will find this to be insightful. The first paper is called Identification of Phase Boundaries in Anhydrate-Hydrate Systems, written by scientists at Pfizer and published in the Journal of Pharmaceutical Sciences in 2007. The second paper is called RH Temperature Phase Diagrams of Hydrate-Forming Deliquescent Crystalline Ingredients, written by scientists at Purdue University and published in the Journal of Food Chemistry in 2017. Now, hopefully I haven't scared you away with these titles, but one thing I want you to notice in each title is the word hydrate. So my first question today to our guests is what is a hydrate and why is it important? And I'll turn this over to you, Zach, and, and you as well, Mary. Sure. Yeah. So uh, hydrate is kind of a vague term, to be totally honest. It can mean a lot of different things in a lot of different contexts. But today what we're talking about is a crystalline lattice forming hydrate. Um, and the, uh, the second paper there, RH Temperature Phase Diagrams uh, by Allen and Maurer, uh, gives, it, gives a very technical description. But the way to, an easy way to think about it is when a uh, crystalline molecule uptakes water and that water is incorporated into the lattice structure, uh, then that can be referred to as a crystalline uh, hydrate in that case. Right. The, the crystal actually binds the water into it, so it becomes part of that molecule. And that changes some of its physical properties. And this is caused by humidity and temperature. And that's what we're going to kind of focus on is finding what those boundaries are. When does that actually happen? Yeah, and the interaction between the two isn't necessarily what I would assume to be the case for some of these boundary conditions. So 
it's kind of an interesting application from that perspective. And Mary, can you tell us why people in the food industry should be aware of hydrates? Yeah, there there are quite a few um, ingredients, especially, that can fall into this category. Some of the list in this paper are glucose, lactose, which we actually hear quite a bit of grief about lactose, um, maltose, uh, trehalose, uh, citric acid, malic acid, sorbitol, and then thiamine chloride, which is like a form of B1 vitamin, which is not just B1, but there are other functional groups like that that can have a trouble with uh, forming a hydrate. Uh, some of the examples I can think of right now is if you form a hydrate, you know, like you raise the temperature, hydrate forms, you don't know it. You dehydrate it. You now are releasing that moisture that was incorporated in that crystal is now released into your formula or whatever. And now you've got this extra moisture that might be causing caking and clumping and issues like that. It also changes the solubility and the stability of an ingredient. So if we kind of talk about functional foods in that regard, that's a big problem. Uh, and also like vitamins, like I was mentioning before with a specific one that they mentioned, which is a, a B1 vitamin. Um, also, if you're having a formulation where you specifically are uh, you know, uh, weighing out um, solids for something to say, vitamins again, we use that, it just works for a lot of ways. Um, and you think, okay, well, I have this percent of, of vitamin in my formula and you've formed a hydrate. Well, water weighs, right? So you actually don't have as much as that functional ingredient or that vitamin, let's say, uh, as you thought you did because of the hydrate, because of the water that's in there. And this can also affect the shelf life. If you've got um, these issues that are happening uh, you know, if you hit over above these points that we're going to talk about and you're forming these hydrates, it changes the shelf life. So uh, if you're able to kind of know where that point is, keep the temperature and the RH down, it keeps it nice and stable and you can extend your shelf life. So there's a lot of key points uh, with knowing about the hydrates and some of these ingredients. Thanks, Mary. And what about hydrates in the pharma industry? Why is this important, Dr. Campbell? A lot of the same things apply there that uh, Mary talked about. The, um, for the um, API, the, the uh, effective ingredient in, in the pharmaceutical, uh, to work right, it has to be soluble. Uh, the research that's done on it is, is done assuming that it's uh, molecular uh, structure doesn't change, uh, and uh, if it does, then it, then that affects the, uh, its efficacy. And so it's important to know uh, the temperature and humidity boundaries that that uh, which the hydrate will form, and to make sure that uh, the work that's done on it is is either in the, the uh, anhydrous state or the hydrated state, but not some in one and some in the other. That information, knowledge of how that's going to occur can help drive choices as it pertains to how is this packaged and distributed? How, does, how is it encapsulated? What excipients are used? Uh, in a suspension, what media is used to suspend it? Because um, either of those materials, for instance, the excipient could form a hydrate, or it could form an anhydrous material, and so by expelling that water, it could impact the API as well. So a little bit of extra knowledge can, can help upstream. 
And I just want to clarify this. It sounds like both in food and pharma, if you're getting a hydrate formation, that might mean that what's on the label doesn't represent uh, what's in the product itself. Is, is this true? Uh, yeah, I think you need to know what's happening for food. Um, I mean, like when we talked about fun functional ingredients and the vitamins, and when we're specifically shooting for a concentration and we have that on the label, that's definitely going to be a problem. For for the other issues that can happen, like the caking and clumping and, and um, you know, the solubility and that kind of stuff, that's also a uh, an issue for in formulation. Although, uh, when we're talking about the API uh, as well, like in, in the pharma industry and also these functional foods, if you have a change in solubility, then people aren't uptaking, you know, into their body what they're expecting. And that's a problem too. All right. Thank you, Mary. And now that we know a little bit about uh, the different applications, let's come back to these papers. So I'll start with you, Dr. Campbell. What was the goal of the Pfizer paper, and how does this compare to the goals in the Purdue paper? Well, the, the uh, goal in both papers is to determine the, the uh, phase boundaries uh, in terms of temperature and humidity at which the uh, hydrate forms. And in the Purdue paper, uh, the boundary where the the uh, crystal deliquesces, or you get the change from the um, from the crystalline state to the to um, uh, solution phase. So if we think of a, a phase diagram, the phase diagram in this case is a a plot of uh, on the y-axis relative humidity or water activity and on the x-axis temperature, then uh, the uh, lines on that graph will show the, the boundaries where the uh, different uh, phases can exist. So you can have a crystalline uh, anhydrous phase uh, for the <clears throat> the material that you're interested in. You can have a, a, a phase where the hydrate has formed and then you can have a, a solution phase. And uh, if once we know the, the location of the boundaries in that diagram, then we can always predict whether we'll have a hydrate or an anhydrous um, form of the material or a, a solution. And you're pointing out these diagrams. What instruments are required to make these diagrams? Maybe you can um, speak about that, Zach. Sure. Yeah. So the uh, the actual formation of these boundary diagrams is fairly complicated. Uh, no one instrument is going to build the entire thing out. So the uh, um, the paper by Allen and Maurer they used actually uh, two or three different methods to build these out for that transition from the anhydrous to the hydrate. Uh, what they were doing is mixing um, binary solvent solutions of different alcohols in water. And the reason they were doing that is it allowed them to uh, basically control the humidity in solution, uh, which is important from this perspective because, as we mentioned, the entire um, conversion from a anhydrous material to a hydrate has some time component uh, encompassed within that. Um, and on top of that, if you're doing it in a, uh, a vapor Phase. So if you're subjecting the, uh, um, the uh, 
They were using glucose, citric acid, and uh, one other, I believe. If you subject those to a, a humid environment, then that's going to add in additional time for that uh, to equilibrate to the point where, you know, the, the, uh, the time scale of the experiment extends into perhaps even the year range. So by controlling those, uh, the water activities of the solvents, they're able to introduce that crystalline uh, hydrate or anhydrous um, material and then measure whether there's any change to the crystal lattice. And if there is, then it's assumed that, that there was, that it is unstable at that point. And so to verify that, I believe they were using uh, IR uh, crystallography of some sort. Yeah, that's how they were checking to see which form was in there. It's pretty, it's pretty neat stuff. I mean, basically, you, you specifically build a water activity solution. Uh, they used ethanol in that paper and water together, and then they just fully, they just put that stuff in there, like the, the crystal, you know, the hydrate or an anhydrous solution, and they put it right in there. And it, it worked so much faster because it's in direct contact with that solution. And so then, then they monitor the water activity, and they see, does the water activity change? And when it plateaued, and that's what they found, then they could say, ah, that's, that's the boundary that we're looking for. And they did it at various temperatures, too, and they did a whole kind of scan. But, yeah, some of the, they referenced, like, 195 days, and they had no change. In another paper, um, they referenced that they had done something like that for a year where they just did it this old kind of way where you just hold it over a specific uh, humidity with a salt solution, and, and they could they'd see like a 3% change in weight over one year. You know, that's, that's a very, that's a, long, that's a lifetime of experiment <laughs> to try to get that kind of data. But to do this, and it would take, you know, a few hours, I think three to seven days maybe, depending on what we're forming, uh, that's huge. That's doable. Right? So. so how are they speeding up that process? If some of these experiments are taking uh, a year's time, is there a faster way to get uh, these same results? So that particular method they, they were using where they introduce it into the, the aqueous solution helps to speed that up dramatically, where yeah. it becomes, I wouldn't call it instantaneous, but much, much faster at that point. Uh, I, I don't remember what how long they were leaving them in equilibrium for. I think overnight at least. Well, it was, like Mary said, three to seven days. Three to seven days. So okay. they just mix up the, the uh, crystal that they were interested in with the alcohol water solutions and they knew the water activity of those solutions by measuring it with the, the uh, TDL water activity meter and they just put those along with a little stir bar inside of one of the sample cups and then they'd seal that up with parafilm and uh, set it on the stir and let it stir for a few days and and then they'd measure the water activity at the end. And so uh, below the water activity at which hydrate started to form, why the, the water activity of the stuff that they put in at the beginning, uh, they got the same water activity at, at the end when they opened it up. But when the, when the hydrate started to form, why that took up a lot of the water, went into a crystalline uh, state with, with the molecules they had put in there. And that just uh, stopped the change in water activity, essentially. And so it was a beautiful experiment where they could just plot the, the water activity at the start versus the water activity at the end. Just increased linearly, and then when hydrate started to form, it went flat. And so just at the intersection of those two lines, uh, 
they knew that was the water activity at which the that they needed for that hydrate boundary. And, and like Zach said, they, by doing it in solution that way, they could get it, uh, go from uh, maybe a few years for an experiment down to a few days for an experiment, just because the exchange is so much more rapid in solution than it is in through the gas phase. Yeah, it is a really simple and like you said, beautiful method for taking something that was originally difficult to measure and simplifying it. And it, it matches up pretty well with how you know similar processes are done at scale in the industry. A benefit of using a volatile is that you can remove it from that. Once you form the hydrate or form the anhydrous, then you can remove that, that solvent. Um, and that's why they were using the TDL as opposed to a different water activity meter. It allowed them to measure various different solvents, even though they ended up using ethanol. Uh, across the board. Yeah, they picked ethanol, I believe, because it gave them less side reactions or anything like that. Like it was just really yeah. worked well, well with what they were testing. But they did it at different temperatures, too, and they kind of scanned. But the other interesting thing I thought was they could go b- both ways. You can start with the anhydrous and then, and then kick the water activity up, but they also did it in the other direction, which is they started with the hydrate and went down, and they, re- they could confirm that same point going either direction. And they also used a, a DVS method, too, which is... Um, where basically you're, you're holding those samples at a specific humidity and then watching how that changes the, the weight. And then they, they use that to kind of help um, validate the, the, I think they call it the um, saturated water activity method. Um, uh, so they looked at it a few different ways. And then they had the X-ray diffraction, which also would go and say, okay, because when they hit that, that boundary, it's quite interesting that both of those states and are in equilibrium, meaning that there's a hydrate and an anhydrous form in there, and then they would check that with the X-ray diffraction. It was all quite, it was all nifty. So um, there were a couple of acronyms that were in there. I just want to point them out. Um, one of them was TDL. Um, this is a, a type of water activity meter, and in all fairness, meter does produce uh, this meter. But why is this specific instrument important for this project, and what does TDL stand for? Yeah. So. Uh the TDL stands for tunable diode laser, and specifically for this application, because they were using alcohol-based solvents to control the water activity, no other uh, instrument would work for that um, or would have some serious pitfalls they'd have to work around as well. So that was the critical reason why they, they chose that instrument. And Mary, you mentioned DVS. Can you tell us what that stands for and, and how that information is collected? Yeah, so there are other instruments that... that Basically, we'll do an isotherm where um, it's a static uh, vapor sorption isotherm. So they're holding a, a sample at a specific humidity and then tracking the weight. And then that can be related to a moisture content. And and uh, we we also have an instrument that does this very thing uh, called the VSA or vapor sorption analyzer um, that is very useful for this stuff. And one of the things as we read in this paper, and they didn't use ours, which is fine, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But I was thinking... Ours would have done it. (laughs) Ours would have done it. Uh, Yeah, ours would have definitely done it. Um, But I was wondering, too, like, we we have another patented, you know, method that only our VSA does, which is the dynamic dew point isotherm, which basically is just pushing moist air over the sample, and we're tracking the weight as well, but it's not allowed to equilibrate, right? So we're just forcing these real-time reactions to happen. And when we do that, when we do those with, with salts and things that we have and sugars, those kinds of things, as they also are crystalline, 
we absolutely see the um, the deliquescence point, that point where it goes from right from solid right into a liquid phase. We you, it's so clear when we do it that way. And also, we can also see these waters of hydration form. So my thought was kind of like, hmm, I wonder if they used our instrument, if they could have mm-hmm. also gotten some really you know data. Uh, that way, it's really fascinating um, trend when you look at it that way, where these waters of hydration um, are added, and then basically the water activity jumps down. It's kind of the similar process that we're talking about here when they form the hydrate because it's removed from that solution. So it's the same kind of idea. So it's it's in there, and then it's held on, and so the water activity drops, but the weight doesn't change. Anyway, it's it's fascinating stuff. I'll, I'll be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> You're just full of excitement. I can see. <laughs> Um, if they would have used the DDI method, the dynamic dew point isotherm, could they get results even faster? Yes, I think so. Because when we're talking about, um, when we do those types of tests, we're doing a specific flow rate. And, and crystalline structures are a little tricky because you don't want to speed it up too fast. So we have to kind of slow the reaction down. But it does happen a lot faster than when we've talked about here where we're talking months or years for that vapor you know, because we're we're constantly introducing more vapor, if that makes sense. You know, there's uh, where, where when you do like a desiccated chamber, a chamber that has this, the saturated salts below it, that there's limited, uh, you know, it'll it'll continue to release moisture to a certain point because it, it has that capability because that's just built into the salt. But but then the desiccators themselves, if they're not sealed well, there's just more problems with that. Mm-hmm. So. You know, I, I think so. It would be an interesting idea to try, actually. But I know for a fact that we can definitely see those phenomena happen that we talked about. And then, Dr. Campbell, is there anything in these papers that is missing? What would you like to see in a follow-up experiment? Well, some of the kinds of things that Mary just mentioned, I, I would love to, to uh, repeat parts of these experiments with our our uh, VSA that has the, the dynamic uh, isotherm scan and see if we can I- identify the, these changes in the, uh, the associated with hydrate formation. Um, with that, I'd kind of like to d- try the, the uh, other thing with the, the uh, TDL and uh, the slurries in those cups too, just to see if I could make that work the way they made it work. Uh, it's such a beautiful experiment. Well, is there anything that we've missed today? So we've talked about the papers, we've defined the hydrates and talked about their applications. We've gone over methodology and, and instruments. Is there anything else that you guys would like to add today to this podcast? Uh, I, I mean, I think that we covered some of the big picture stuff. The uh, The papers themselves are, are quite in-depth, and both authors, all authors, did a great job of going through the, the methodology. Uh, so I would implore those who are interested to take a look at the, the source papers. Well, hopefully this podcast hasn't been too technical for uh, you, you listeners, and hopefully you have a better understanding of what hydrates are, how they're analyzed, and why they are important to both the food and pharmaceutical industries. I'd like to thank each of my guests today for their time and for their expertise. I'm Zachary Cartwright. This is Water and Food. Find this podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.